Hebrews chapter 3 is where we find ourselves. And, and this theme of Jesus being the greatest is a theme that should readily change how we live our lives. And I'm so glad I'm a part of a church that makes much of Jesus. I'm so glad I'm a part of a church that it is not difficult for our worship team. It's not difficult for your pastoral staff and for me, the preacher today, to get you excited about that theme of Jesus. Our leadership has been so blown away by your faithfulness in this season of ministry. And we, as you know, have not been sitting idly by, waiting, biding our time for all of this stuff to get beyond us so that we can, in essence, get back on mission. Because we have desired and we long so much to make much of Jesus that we've just continued to try to do that. In light of all that's been going on, yeah, things have been different and we've had to figure out things, but... I don't know of many churches right now amidst a pandemic that are doing major renovations to prepare themselves for the next chapter of ministry. That people would be given, I hear a lot of churches struggling financially, and yet we are a church that continues to give and continues to be faithful. We're blown away by the faithfulness of our volunteers. When, when indoor services came back and it was time to jump back onto things, we had hundreds of volunteers say, I'm ready, put me in, sign me up. And we are so excited. So I just want to say, first of all, thank you for being a church that makes much of Jesus. And thank you for a church that is giving. Because without those gifts, we wouldn't be able to be doing what we're doing today. At the end of my message, I'm going to share a little bit. We'll watch a video from our executive pastor, uh, Keith Duff, and we're going to talk about how we are going to continue, as we've been talking about for over a year now, about a new opportunity that we have to make much of Jesus in the Fox Valley area and all over the world. And this is what this theme of Hebrews is all about, make much of Jesus. Why? Because he's the greatest. He's the greatest endeavor. He's the greatest opportunity. He's the greatest of saviors because he is the savior that has redeemed us from our sin and made us into a right relationship with God. And that's what the writer's talking about. But the problem admits that as we live in a world of sin, we live in a world where not everybody makes much of Jesus. In fact, we live in a world where people want to make less of Jesus. They don't want Jesus at all. And so this book of Hebrews that we've been studying over these last weeks is a letter written to encourage and exhort believers that though life is hard, though life is difficult, though the trials and tribulations that come will, wait, will make you want to walk away from the faith, to endure, to hold on tight, these Hebrew Christians found themselves under this thought, if I make less of Jesus, life will go a whole lot better for me. You see, they were losing property. They were losing family and friends. They were losing opportunities in their communities, standing in their communities. And they were losing all of these things for one reason, because of their allegiance to Christ Jesus. Now, I wonder if we were really honest with ourselves if we don't hang around individuals, maybe in school, <clears throat> maybe in the workplaces, maybe in our neighborhoods, or maybe even in our homes, our families, where people will say, maybe in veiled threats or, 
or, or maybe they just come out and say it, make less of Jesus. Stop talking about him so much. Can you, can you get off of the whole Jesus thing, the whole Bible thing? It, it's cramping your style. And in those moments, it is really easy to fall prey to the idea that if I make less of Jesus, my life will go better for me. The writer says over and over again, listen, don't stop. Don't stop loving Christ. Don't stop exalting Christ. The most foolish thing that any Christ follower can do is to give up on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so what the writer is going to do is as we embark on chapter 3 of this letter, it starts with the word, look there, therefore. Therefore. What that means is in light of since or because of. It's, it's a clause there that forces you to look back to where you've been. And so we've been in two chapters. In chapter one, we've seen Jesus is the greatest of all time because he created all things and he sustains all things and upholds all things by the power of his word. This Jesus, it says in Hebrews chapter one, is the greatest of all time, greater than any angel because he is the one who saves and he is the one who secures believers. In chapter two, amidst this great Jesus, can you believe that we as Christ followers would be tempted in light of all that we know about Jesus, that we would be tempted to drift away? And there's this warning about drifting away from the faith, that slow and subtle process of decision upon decision, just walking away, becoming more and more lukewarm in your relationship with Christ. And so what the author says is, in light of all that, I want you to hold on tight. We're going to see that phrase, holding fast, at the end of this uh, passage in verse 6. You know, we do that in life. When times of trouble and difficulty come, when tribulation comes our way, we look for something to grab a hold of. For little kids, it's that security blanket that they want before they go to bed. Or maybe it's that little teddy bear. It's something that makes them feel all warm and fuzzy inside. It makes them feel safe. But we've grown up, and we've got grown-up problems, and so what do we turn to? Maybe it's another person. Maybe it's a person that maybe is a spouse. Maybe it's your mom and dad. Maybe it's your pastor. Maybe it's, it's somebody that, that you turn to when the going gets tough. That's the first phone call that you make. For others, it's a belief in, in something, a process. For some, uh, it, it may be a vice of a sort. Maybe it's drugs or alcohol. Maybe it's that favorite TV show. Maybe it's that favorite activity that when I get there, it is my safe place, it is my sanctuary, and you grab a hold of it as the storm rages on and you hold on tight. And when you are there, you feel like you can endure. The, le- the readers of this letter, they had a security blanket. These Hebrews had someone that when the going got tough, they ran to. It wasn't Jesus. Like many of us, instead of running to Jesus, we run to all manner of things. And all of them are good. What the Hebrews are going to grab a hold of is a good thing. They weren't running to sin. They were running to a good thing. And you know who they were running to? Moses. 
Now you say, wait a minute, why would they run to Moses? And for us in the 21st century, it doesn't make any sense. But later on in our uh, time today, we're going to see how truly great Moses was in their eyes and why they were running to him. But what we're going to learn today is while Moses was great, once again, we're going to learn Jesus is greater. And we need to run to him and we need to hold tightly to him. And so let's look at our text this morning because there are many benefits and blessings that come when we hold tightly to our Savior. This is how the text begins. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses." As much more glory as the builder of a house has more glory than the house itself. For every house, he says parenthetically, is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's uh, house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast or hold tightly our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This text unleashes three things for us of what we need to do. We need to hold tightly to something. And we, by nature, will hold and grab hold of anything that we can in the time of the storm. But the believer is to hold fast, hold tightly to Jesus. But how do we do that? The author gives us three things. Number one, to hold tightly, we have to live in community. Now let's just stop there. Wait a minute. If I'm to hold tightly to Jesus, why are we talking about other people? I live in community. It doesn't help me in my relationship. I go to work. There's a community there. I go to school. There's a community there. I live in my neighborhood. There's a community there. None of that helps me and holding tightly to Jesus. So what in the world is the author talking about? Notice verse one, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Stop there. What we need to have as followers of Jesus Christ, the writer says, is we need to be a part of a family. Now, the writer has already talked about this in chapter 2 when he said that Jesus is not ashamed to call you and me brothers and sisters. Amidst our sin, amidst our difficulty, amidst our rebellion against God, because of the redemption that you and I have experienced, Jesus says now, we're brothers. We're brothers. And we're in a family. And this family unit is something that we should not take lightly. Now, we're told a couple things about this. First of all, we see that we are to share in something. That word share there, literally in other translations, the word partake, as partakers, and that's probably closer to what the original intent of the author was, because this word share or partakers gives the idea of you ingesting something. And that's you're partaking in something. 
you're sitting at, at, a, at a, a table this afternoon as you're eating lunch and you're going to eat something. Something that is outside of you is going to go inside of you. And this idea of partaking in the Greek is that it will then mobilize you, it will energize you to greater things. What the author is saying is you need to be involved in a community. If you're going to hold tight to Jesus, you need other people, your brothers and sisters, who are going to engage with you in such a way that as you partake in that community, you walk out energized, mobilized, and ready for the next thing you're going to do. It's what food does for us. We come in, we're famished, we're low on energy, we sit at the table, we partake of something, it goes into us, and it energizes us for the rest of our day to be able to continue what we're doing. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He is saying that these partakers are the holy brothers and sisters that you're living in life within community. And so what he's saying is you need to hold tightly to Jesus. You need other brothers and sisters who are going to help you along the way. Now there's a couple of things that we need to recognize. What are things that we share in? What are we to partake in? What is our food? The food is, notice number one, our confession at the end of the verse there. We share in this same confession. Now, this word confession means that we trust in someone who we confide in. What's our confession? Notice we are to consider Jesus. Jesus is what connects us. It is what we announce to one another. And so when we gather together, our gatherings are placed under this idea that we've got something to say. What do we have to say? Jesus. To every issue. To every part of the dialogue, our common confession is this Jesus who we are called to consider. The word confess to, of, of confession means it is something we say in unity. It literally means to say the same thing. It's something that we unify together and we announce this is who we are. Now this is so important. Because we live in a world that tells us that we are to be divided. That we are to uh, dissect the culture with all of these different groups. And you've got to figure out which group you're a part of. And we try to dissect it in all of these worldly ways. We have these types of peoples and these types of peoples and these types of peoples and these. And, and these people, some are oppressing other people and some are being oppressed by those people. And the world says buy into all of this. But here's what the word of God says. As Christians, we are one people. In fact, there are only two types of people in this world. Unbelievers and believers. Because on the day of the Lord, that is going to be the great litmus test of all people. Is your, is your name in the Lamb's book of life or not? And so when we gather together as a church, we're gathering together not as bald people and people with hair, not Sox fans or Cub fans, not black people or white people, not rich people or poor people. We are coming together under the banner of Christ, this Christ who we've considered, he's our confession. And that is what 
We need to witness to the world. Because the world's fighting. The world's arguing. I'm better than you. I'm this over you. I'm that over you. You're hurting me. I'm hurting you. All of this bickering that's going on. And what the church says is, listen, the only thing we have to say is Jesus. Jesus. He's the one who saves. Well, what kind of people does he save? All people. Everywhere. And so this is what we confess. Now this confession was what was getting the Hebrews in trouble. Because this confession wasn't a private confession. It was a public confession. And so their boss would hear this confession. Their spouse would hear this confession. Their kids or their parents would hear this confession. Their friends would hear this confession. And they would say, wait a minute. If that's your confession, then you're not with me. And so these people started to feel alienated and started to feel like they had been scorned for their faith. And the writer says, listen, yeah, you may be abandoned or orphaned by those around you, but you have a family. And it's this family of brothers and sisters. But notice what this commonality is in. It's in our confession But notice it's in our calling. What is our calling? It's a holy calling. So as we gather together under Christ, our goal as we gather, and by the way, we're doing it right now. We are living out Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1. We're living it right now. Now, our job as we live this out in this living moment is to make one another holy. Now, wait a minute, we're all sinners. How can we make one another holy? The writer will say later on in chapter 10, spur one another on towards loving good deeds. So my job this morning is to poke at you into holiness, to spur you on. Hey, let's get excited about Christ. Hey, let's get excited about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Hey, let's start serving our Lord. Let's start worshiping him like we've never done before. That is our job that we are to be doing to one another and recognizing amidst that that there will be some who will neglect that kind of assembling together. Why? Because these people keep getting into my business. I don't want that. I want to live in the life I'm in. But we need to spur one another on. Now, all of this can happen as long as we're not distracted. And that leads us to the second thing. We can live in community. But here's the problem. If this community doesn't have its moorings, okay, doesn't have a foundation, then this group of people can easily become a political action committee, It can become a fan club. It can become a country club. It can become all manner of things. Why did you get together? We get together to talk about a lot of things. The thing I love about the pandemic right now is everybody is online from a church standpoint. And I have a friend who is a deacon within a mainline denomination, and they had invited me, hey, I know you're a pastor. Watch my church service, okay? And I did. And the service, the individual that was speaking, was speaking behind this beautiful uh, setting of colored trees and all of that. And I'm like, wow, what a great opportunity to preach from Psalm 8. 
the majesty, how creation speaks of the majesty of our Lord. Now, I don't mean anything of disrespect, but, but here's what the whole conversation was. To protect what you see behind me, I want to share three points to you, and all of them started with buying an electric car. I kid you not. Okay? Now, we need to do our best to protect the environment, but the gathering of God's people together is not for you to buy an electric car. Okay? Now, is there anything wrong with an electric car? Well, they don't make them very big for guys like me, so I look at those and I see casket written all over them, but, but there's nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing, but that's not the thing. And that's what we've got. He drives a gas guzzler, by the way. <clears throat> but, that, but that is where we've got to be careful. And, and listen, Village Bible Church can fall to this as well. And so what we've got to be careful with is we've got to have a foundation of what this community is going to do. So we nail the community. We've got this place. We love one another. We're spurring one another on. But what are we spurring them on to? Notice the text says, Consider Jesus. Man, underline that if you're an underliner in your Bible because that is so important. What are the followers to do? They're to consider Christ. Now, it seems so elementary. Of course we would consider Jesus. Of course anybody who's a Christ follower would do that. But that wasn't the case. To consider, in the Greek, literally means to apply one's mind diligently. To fix one's attention to a thing so that you might understand the significance from it. That's why later in the book, uh, the uh, writer will say, fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he's the author and perfecter or finisher of our faith. Now, to do this, to do this, three things need to take place. Number one, there has to be a desire. You have to want to consider Jesus. It is not going to happen without a desire behind it. Number two, you have to desire it. Second, you have to have concentration and discipline. That is, okay, I desire things. Well, listen, I desire a lot of things in this world, but I don't get those things. Why? Not because I don't want them. It's because I don't dedicate or concentrate on that. And so I've got to give it my desire, I've got to focus in on it, and third, I've got to give it time. I've got to give it time. I can look and gaze at things and dream up things that I want, but until I give it the time and the attention it needs, it's not going to happen. Based on these points, I love what Kent Hughes, a, a pastor uh, who pastored not too far from here, said about this. Lack of these things is why so many Christians are sick and useless and are falling by the way. It is because they do not cultivate a desire, concentration, or give the time to fix their eyes upon Jesus. We have to look to Jesus. Now, what do we need to look at Jesus about? What are we focusing on? Number one, we need to focus or consider on who Jesus is. The writer says Jesus is the apostle, and he is the high priest. Now right away you say, wait a minute. Jesus didn't do any of those things in his earthly ministry. At no point uh, was Jesus an apostle. Jesus had apostles. 
And nowhere do we see that Jesus actually did the role of being a priest. In fact, it was many of the priests that hated his guts during Jesus' ministry here. Well, we need to recognize what the writer is saying here is that Jesus was acting as an apostle. He was acting as a high priest in a way that nobody ever has before. So an apostle is one sent from God to be an individual who speaks on God's behalf. The apostles, the 12 disciples, they were commissioned by God himself to give a message to declare to the world. Jesus is the quintessential apostle sent from God to speak on behalf of God the message God has for people. That's the downward trajectory of of that calling. That's what apostles, their calling was a downward one, meaning they received from God and then they gave it to people. The high priest had the exact opposite role. The high priest's job was to go from the people. He was a representative from the people who had been given the charge of taking their message to God. So they would go, and on the day of, uh, uh, of atonement, the high priest would come out as one, a representative from his people. He would go into the Holy of Holies with an uh, unblemished sacrifice, and he would speak on behalf of the people, and he would say, Lord, forgive us our sins. Lord, we have rebelled. We have sinned against you. Forgive us and, and heal us, please. He spoke as a representative from the people to God. It was an upward calling. Jesus, listen to me, is the greatest of all time because he plays both parts. Jesus came and he came and spoke the gospel and he proclaimed the kingdom of God. Who sent him? God the Father. But he doesn't stop there. He then turns around, puts another hat on, the hat of the high priest, and he says, okay, Father, on behalf of this sinful people, I stand as a sacrifice to you. You heal them. You forgive them. You blot out their transgressions because as a high priest, I'm representing them to you. He plays the both ends. And this calling that God has given to Christ makes him greater than anyone. Now again, I wonder if the writer is hearing the argument. And the argument is, yeah, but. My kids aren't in this service, but my kids love the yeah, buts. I hate yeah, buts. But this is what they say. Yeah, but. Yeah, but what? What about Moses? Well, the author says, okay, let's consider Moses. Now notice what he says. Just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Then he speaks uh, parenthetically to this issue of God being the builder of all houses. And he says, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Servant, son. Let's talk about this. What is then brought up is, okay, what about Moses? What about our security blanket? You want us to hold tightly to Jesus? They killed Jesus. You want us to hold tightly to Jesus? They beat up on Jesus, and now they're beating up on us. You know who didn't get beat up? Moses. Remember they did this with angels in chapter 1 and 2. What about angels? Man, every time angels showed up, man, victories happened. 
And so now they pivot. What about Moses? And Moses, notice nowhere in the text, is Moses denigrated or, or spoken less of? Moses, listen, in the Jewish family, Moses was on everybody's Mount Rushmore. He's there. Moses is a first ballot, unanimous Jewish Hall of Famer in every book, all right? Only an idiot would say that Moses didn't play a pivotal and massive role in all of it. Listen, people that have given up on God in the Jewish ethnicity and religion still hold Moses in high esteem. Do you know that? You don't badmouth Moses. Do you see how a good thing can become your security blanket? Maybe you're holding on to something right now. You're saying, but it's a good thing. It's a gift from God. Listen, Moses was a gift from God to the Jewish people, and they were holding on tightly to that. And so the writer says, okay, let's talk Moses for a moment. Well, we know Moses But we don't know Moses like the Jewish people knew Moses. So let me remind you about, because when I talk about Moses right away, you get the the Charlton Heston thing in your mind, except for anybody who's 25 and younger. They have no idea. They think Charlton Heston is an apostle of some sort. And so what do we need to know about Moses? Well, listen, everything about Moses is miraculous. Moses is living during a time at the lowest, one of the lowest points of Jewish history. They're enslaved in Egypt. And the only thing they got going for them is a high birth rate. And the pharaohs see that and they say, we've got to reduce this because these boys will be born and they'll become an army. So let's just end this. And the decree comes out, we're going to kill all the boy babies. And Moses is one of those that is in the bullseye of Pharaoh. But in a miracle, let's just be honest, a miracle, a peasant mom comes up with the wherewithal that I'm going to hide my baby, I'm going to put my baby in a basket, I'm going to put my baby into one of the largest rivers in all of the world, and that baby is going to go down the river and just by happenstance show up in Pharaoh's daughter's house. Yeah, that works. And then I'm going to have the wherewithal to send my daughter, and she is going to say, hey, uh, you found this baby? You're going to adopt this baby? Hey, I got a great housekeeper. I got a great nanny who can nurse the child, who can wean the child, who can care for the child. And, and wouldn't you know it, it's Moses' mom. He's going to then live in Pharaoh's house. Little by little, he's going to learn that he is of Israelite descent, he's going to be adopted. That adoption story is going to come out. And he's going to make some difficulties along the way. There's going to be troubles in Moses' life. He's going to flee for a while. And the Israelite people know what it's like to flee. Israelites know what it's like to live in someone else's house because during this time they're in Rome's house. And so they know this. And so Moses is them. That's why they love Moses so much. And Moses flees. He runs away for a season. But you know what he does? He comes back. And he comes back. And wouldn't you know it? The only thing he's got is a borrowed staff. And he walks into the most 
powerful man's throne room, Pharaoh, without an army. And he says, let my people go. Now, Pharaoh laughs at first, and they know what it's like to be laughed at. But then Moses says, okay, try these 10 things on for size. And miracle upon miracle. And what these people say, it's all Moses, man. Moses turned the Nile red. The, uh, Moses brought the locusts. Moses brought the frogs. Moses did all of these things, including the death of the firstborn in all of Egypt. And Moses is just getting started. Because then what Moses does is he liberates the people. He liberates a million to two million individuals. And again, with no army, without shooting an arrow. That's miraculous. And so they let him go. And not only do they let him go, they let him take all of the riches of Egypt with them. Come on. Those are the good old days. You leave as a slave and you take all of the investments of Egypt with you. And so they pack everything up and they go and yay, yay, Moses is great. And then Pharaoh's army starts chasing after them. And so he chased after them. They find themselves at the heels of the Red Sea. And what does Moses do? He splits the darn thing. I mean, this guy is amazing. He does awesome stuff. And then he feeds a couple million people for 40 years. He looks to heaven and prays and bread falls down from the sky he hits a rock and water comes from it. You know, okay, you say, yeah, I know all these things from Sunday school. But these things had bearing on the first century Jewish individual. And they're saying, wait a minute, when we look at Moses and we look at Jesus, Moses takes the cake. You know that you and I do that when we trust other things than Jesus? We take other things and we say, wow, they're way more important. They're stronger. They're more um, uh, available to me than Jesus is. And what the Hebrews were doing, we're doing exactly what we do when we trust our bank accounts and we trust other people, other relationships, our 401ks. When we trust those things, we make little of Jesus and we make much of other things. They had done that with Moses. And let's not forget, Moses talked to God. I mean, this guy... He's it. That's why the first five books of our scriptures, they would say, were all about Moses. Think about this. Of the Torah, the Jewish scriptures, what books of the Jewish scriptures did every Hebrew have to memorize? The first five. Yeah, even numbers, by the way. Well, those were Moses' books. Do you see how enthralled they were about Moses? And the writer says, but wait, let's talk about Jesus. So here's what we need to know about Jesus. Let's recognize that yes, before I go there, let's, let's talk a little bit more about Moses, okay? Before I, go to, uh, before I go to Jesus, let's talk Moses. I found this quote by a guy named I. M., Dr. I.M. Haldeman. And he says the following. The life of Moses presents a series of striking antithesis. He was the child of a slave and the son of a queen. He was born in a hut and lived in a palace. He inherited poverty and enjoyed ultimate or unlimited wealth. He was the leader of armies and the keeper of flocks. He was the mightiest of warriors and the meekest of men. By the way, it says of Moses, he was the most humble man to live. 
He was educated in the court. He dwelt in the desert. He had the wisdom of Egypt, and he had the faith of a child. He was fitted for a city, and he wandered in the wilderness. He was tempted with the pleasures of sin and endured the hardships of virtue. He was backward in speech and talked with God. He had the rod of a shepherd and the power of the infinite. He was a fugitive from Pharaoh and an ambassador from heaven. He was the giver of the law and the forerunner of grace. He died alone on Mount Moab and appeared with Christ in Judea. No man assisted at his funeral, yet God buried him. Let's just stop there and be honest. A lot of that could be said about Jesus, right? This is a great man. And we can fall in love with this great man, but let's not forget Jesus. So the argument goes. Moses was a part of the house as a servant. Jesus is a part of the house as a son. So let's, let's do a compare and contrast for a moment. Moses was faithful in his generation, yes, but Jesus is faithful in all generations. Moses freed his people from Egypt and took them into a wilderness, yes, but Jesus frees his people from death and brings them into eternal life. Yes, Moses did miracles, but he only did it when he was empowered by God. Jesus did miracles, and he did it by the power of his word. Moses had episodes of walking and talking with God, but Jesus lives in perpetual fellowship and communion with our Father in heaven. The author says that Moses was a great servant, but Jesus is the only one who can be called God's son. So the role of Moses, listen, is to point to Jesus. The role of that good thing that you're holding on to tight is to point you to a greater thing that will keep you safer than anything in this world. So stop looking to that good thing and look for the greater thing. The greater thing being Jesus. So what are we to do with this Jesus? Let me close with this. We are to lean on Jesus in all circumstances. So this confession we have, this consideration of Jesus, who's counted worthy of more glory than anyone, including Moses, what are we to do? We are to join in the house that Jesus is building. He uses this illustration that God's building a house. Moses isn't the builder, but Jesus is. Jesus is the one who will inherit the house, therefore he's the one building the house. And so there are servants that come along the way and are part of the material that helps the house to be built. We are being used. The Bible says we are living stones being built into a spiritual house, Peter tells his readers. And so what are we to do? Well, it's easy for us to, instead of being a part of the house building, to drift away. But we can play the part like Moses did, and we can preach and proclaim and serve in our generation. But notice there's a caveat there. All of this can happen if, if there in verse 6, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. You want to be a part of this building? It's not for sure that you will. It's conditional. So there's a couple things that need to happen. 
And what we need to do is we need to hold fast. That's the whole tenor of this message. Hold fast. Hold tightly to Jesus. That phrase there, hold fast, or holding fast, is used a couple different times in the New Testament. It's used, in fact, in Acts 27, when it says that they made their way to shore because of a storm. So Paul and his companions are in this boat. The water is moving up and down. They're about to be shipwrecked. And so as good sailors, they go to their security place. Where's their security? On the shore. That's where they'll find the peace that they're looking for. And so they made haste to get to the shore. Listen, the first step of holding fast isn't tightening your grip. It's getting close to the person you're going to grab a hold of. And so what we need to do is we need to ask the question, am I running to Jesus? Am I leaning on Jesus? Before I can take a hold of him, I have to be near him. Isn't that what all the banks try to tell us today? We want to make your uh, finances accessible at all times. We don't want to leave you hanging. So we're going to get as close to you as possible so you can have peace. Jesus says, I am there in the storm. And the question is, are you going to grab a hold of them? Well, you can if you're distancing away from him, if you're drifting away from him. And so we've got to make our way to Jesus. We need to beeline to Jesus. Because whatever troubles and struggles are coming our way, Jesus is our safety. So we need to take hold of him. This idea here of taking hold also gives the idea of of being singular in your focus. This is what I'm going to do. I'm taking hold of Jesus. I'm going to close in a moment. But let me ask you, how tightly are you holding on to Jesus right now? Have you ever noticed that you hold tighter to Jesus in storms and troubles than you do when life is good? And so maybe life's going really, really well for you right now. And my encouragement would be, don't distance yourself in good times away from Jesus. Get close to him. Lean on him. Now notice why we need to hold on tightly to Jesus. Because we need confidence and we need hope. Well, how do those two things work? Confidence we need in the present Hope we need in the future. Confidence you need today, hope you need for tomorrow. So how do we lean on Jesus? How do we hold tightly to Jesus? We hold tightly to Jesus by getting close to him and confessing him and making him our all in all. And we do that today because our problems are here today and we're gonna do it tomorrow because tomorrow's gonna have its own set of problems and the only way we're gonna get through this life is when we make Jesus number one. Now, we're gonna talk about this in weeks to come, but it's really quick for us to then say, well, that doesn't sound like much fun. That sounds like just the grit and bear it type idea. But I want you this sentence to be here as a takeaway. When I talk about holding on, it is more about delight and enjoyment than duty and endurance. When we grab a hold of Jesus as our security blanket, there come many benefits and blessings to it. The peace of God, which transcends all your understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus, we are told. That we are to throw our anxieties on him because he cares for us. It is a good thing. It is an enjoyable thing. It is a hopeful thing for us to trust Jesus and to put our lives into his hands. Are you holding fast to Jesus? If not, 
What does your community life look like? Are you looking at what Christ has to offer? Have you even considered Jesus? And are you leaning on him? No matter the circumstances that come. This whole first part of the book of Hebrews is about making as much of Jesus as we can. And this isn't just true for us as people, individuals. It is true for us as a church. And and your elders pray for this all the time. Your staff prays for this all the time. Lord, we want our world to make much of you. And if that means we've got to go and do that and shake our neighborhoods out of that slumber that they don't see Jesus as great, we're going to invade those communities. We're going to invade those neighborhoods. And we are going to make your name great so that people may be able to bow the knee and give their lives to Christ. Christ. 